Well, good morning, church. How are you today? That's a good day, isn't it? Hey, a couple of really quick kind of things. So some of you have probably been curious. We obviously are having a projector issue. We've been having it for a few weeks. Our team is doing a fantastic job working on it. And uh, FedEx had a little mistake, and so now they're working on it. And uh, I just want to say thanks also to our tech team. We've been having soundboard problems for weeks now, and they've been running around, coming up literally with emergency action plans. And uh, I just want to say thanks to Wes and his team. Would you guys just say thanks real quick? They could work so hard. I appreciate you guys. Servants just, I mean, never complain, or at least not to me, anyway, they <laughs> just do a great job. Also, last week, I was out of town. For those of you who weren't here, you're visiting, or maybe just missed it, and uh, Todd did a fantastic job in my absence, and um, it just wanted to say thanks to Todd. Man, did a great message. Just go online, listen. Go online, listen. I had the, uh, the great opportunity. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to, to pour out the gift God gave me to others. Over 200 men were gathered at men's retreat. I got to speak to them, and God just started to expose some wounds that had been kind of scabbed over but never really healed, and uh, he began to heal some of those. There were some men who were dealing with some intense sin issues, need to go home, have some conversations, hard conversations with their spouses and their families, and uh, God encouraged them and challenged them to do that, and we'll just pray for their follow-throughs. If you're moved in this room to do that, just pray that they will do that, take the next hard step. So we're we're going to pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Philippians. We're now in week three of this book. And what we're doing is just looking at the book and saying, what does it mean for us? So for those of you visiting or new to this, God moved in my heart and the elder's heart over the last year and said, look, what would it look like if we were to take Acts chapter one, verse eight, and to model that as a church for the next year? So in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the apostles right before he goes up into heaven, he says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so we said, okay, we're as a church going to spend basically, you know, two to four months, around three months on each of those things, not literally over in Jerusalem or Judea, but what about our own Jerusalem? So in block one, Jerusalem, we focused here on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones. And now we are in kind of block two, what we call Judea, Judea. We're looking at what does it look like now to take the good news about Jesus Christ outside outside our walls. And we're doing that while we look at the book of Philippians. So for those of you visiting, you may hear some of that language, and that's what's going on here. We're calling this the journey. So I want you to turn with me now in the Bible to Acts chapter 16. If you don't know how to find it, we've made two easy ways, two easy ways for you to follow along. One is to download the app in your app store. We should have Wi-Fi in the room, assuming that's working. Otherwise, you might be lucky enough to get cell coverage. And if that doesn't work, you don't know how to find the book of Acts, we'll have all of it for you here. You can just follow along and uh, Make a note for yourself about what to do there. So, in Acts chapter 16, we meet this guy named Paul. Paul is the apostle Paul, used to be Saul. God changed his name, his identity, and he's now Paul. Paul has gathered his buddy Silas, and they go uh, to start a church. Now, they didn't know where to go. We looked at that two weeks ago, but God finally gave them in a dream, I want you to go over to the area of Macedonia, an ancient Greco-Roman world. The first city, first major city, but first city they would have come to was Philippi. I believe it was about 10 miles into the area of Macedonia. So they go over, and they take a guy named Timothy with them, a little young protege Paul's pouring his life into. So we have at least Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke. Just fascinating. I read this in a commentary. I can't prove it to you. Nobody can. It's possible Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, was the actual man that Paul saw in his dream, and he actually met Luke in Philippi. There's a whole fascinating conversation on that that's not really all relevant, but if you want to know the books to read on that, I can tell you where to point. It's interesting, though. They get to Philippi. Now, here's Paul's method of church planting. 
Paul would get to a city, he would go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That was the order because the Jews were given the precious promises. We call them the Old Testament. The many prophecies. In fact, some have estimated over 300 prophecies that came true in Jesus. This is statistically impossible. This would be like guessing who's going to win the NCAA tournament hundreds of years before you knew there was going to be an NCAA tournament. It's that kind of odds. It's completely impossible. And yet they all came true in Jesus. So Paul would show up in a city. He'd go to a synagogue. He'd rationalize and argue and prove to the Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies. Sometimes a small number, sometimes a great number of Jews would come to believe. And then he would move his ministry to the Gentiles. Sometimes those two things happened simultaneously, but usually he did the, went to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. He gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. And what's going on there? Well, part of it is Philippi is a fascinating city historically. I'll talk a little more as we go, a little more detail on this. But Philippi uh, was uh, uh, <clears throat> conquered many times in war. And as different Caesars or rulers would come up in Rome, Philippi was gifted to some of these different Caesars. And the decades before Jesus' birth, and the decades even through Jesus' life and into Paul's ministry. And so uh, the kind of the city's identity would change as a new Caesar would get it and change it. Well, by the time Paul comes along to the city of Philippi, this is a major outpost for military. And so as such, there were many soldiers and, and that kind of uh, work done in the city of Philippi. Philippi was one of the major ancient Greco-Roman cities. Uh, you can hear more about this in my um, stuff on Revelation from a year ago, but Philippi <coughs> had all kinds of temples and all kinds of stuff going on there. Caesar worship, they literally worshiped Caesar as a god on earth. And uh, just all kinds of fascinating things that are relevant for what we're going to look at today. So when Paul gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. So how's Paul going to do what he always does? Well, here's the thing I want you to take away from all of today. Here's the big, big, big idea. You ready? Paul constantly seeks and seizes opportunities to give glory to God. I want you to hang on those two words. Seeks and seizes. Seeks and seizes. So the way he seeks, as we looked at two weeks ago, is he decides since there's no synagogue, he's just going to go down to the riverbank and see if anybody's gathered there. And when he gets there, he finds a small group of ladies praying together. And when he goes up to them and starts talking to them, and one of the ladies' names is Lydia, we learn in Acts chapter 16, right before what we're going to look at today. He shares the good news with her, and she comes to faith. And here's what we know about Lydia. She's a merchant of purple cloth, and you may go, big deal. Well, purple in that day was very difficult to come by. It was, had to be made in a special place, and it was hard. It was expensive. The fact that she's a merchant tells us she's a business owner. So she's a business owner. She's probably in the world of style of some sort, and she's probably wealthy, after she comes to faith in Jesus, she begs Paul and his companions to come back and stay with her, and she provides for them. So apparently, she has a home big enough to host at least these four men who are coming with her. Now, if Luke really is from Philippi, he might have had his own home. We don't know. But that gives you an idea about the kind of wealth that she had in that day. She had resources. And it's out of that then that we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16, where I want you to see Paul both seeking and seizing. Acts 16, verse 16. Here we go. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, same way he met Lydia, Paul's just continuing the same model. We met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. 
Okay, a few things real quick. Let's camp out in here. So they go down to the place of prayer. They're seeking opportunities. And one of the opportunities they run into is the slave girl who's been filled with, the Greek actually says, a serpent spirit or a Pythian spirit. Now, back in ancient Greco-Roman world, they had what we call a pantheon of gods. There were many, many deities, and they all did different things. You've read them, except for you called them myths. That's what they worshipped as their gods. It's fascinating, huh? And to their gods, they would pay tribute. Not dramatically different than like uh, the, the Mockingjay movies or the Hunger Games. They would literally pay tribute. They would take food. Sometimes they'd sacrifice kids, work, whatever it was, clothing, money. They would bow down and worship. They would beg the said God of whatever, of war, to, to protect them as they go out to battle. They'd beg the God of fertility to bless them that they might have kids, and on and on and on it would go. And then they would, if it didn't work out well, they assumed they'd upset the gods, and the gods were angry. And one of those kind of gods of processes was of the Pythian gods, and they represented a serpent. And what I'm about to do right now, so most of today's message will be for anybody visiting, not visiting, know Jesus, don't know Jesus. But I'm going to go about 12 layers deeper real quick. So for those who've been doing this a long time, some of this will make more sense than for the rest of you. That's okay. If you notice all the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, what are they tempted by? A serpent. We get to the book of Revelation, the last book, and what do we find over and over and over again? Satan is referenced as a dragon and as that ancient serpent. It's not an accident that throughout history, this concept of serpent, I'm not saying snakes aren't cool, you may think so, I don't, but the idea, though, that Satan has twisted things, manipulated. So in that culture, literally, there was a whole temple based around this idea, and you would go down there, and there were people who would invite the serpent into them. Now, either this girl did that at some point, or maybe she picked it up along the way, we don't know. It was even said of a ventriloquist in that day. You know, ventriloquists, we would laugh at, whatever, today. Ventriloquists, even in that day, were said to have a serpent in their belly. And that's how they did what they did. But what a serpent-filled person would do is they would predict the future. And ancient Roman writings tell us that they were right some of the time. Of course, they were wrong some of the time, too. But because they were occasionally right, people would go to them and ask them what the future held. Now, this is a little side note, but it fits in perfectly, and I don't want to miss an opportunity. So for those of you who are believers, you need to know this. The Bible goes to great lengths to condemn this kind of activity in us. In fact, there's a passage in Deuteronomy. I haven't looked it up, but I can't remember where it is. I want to say Deuteronomy 6 or 9, but I could be totally off. Forgive me for that. I just remember reading it. And in Hebrew, God goes uses literally every word in their language to say, avoid fortune tellers, avoid psychics. Avoid tarot cards, avoid talking to the dead. He, I mean, he literally uses every known Hebrew word to say have nothing to do with them. There is something in that world, and it's not good, and it's not from God. Stay away from it. So if you're reading horoscopes and you're studying the stars, not because I love to study the stars, but I'm not looking for the stars to give me answers about what to do with my life. And I'm, I'm telling you now, because I love you, put it away. Have nothing to do with it, the Bible says, over and over and over again. So, here we find this young lady, and apparently she has some sort of talent, some sort of ability. Look at verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Is there anything in what she's saying that's wrong? That's fascinating, isn't it? Well, a few things. 
Number one, the fact that she calls God the most high is interesting. She's filled with this demonic spirit, but she, even the spirit inside her, knows where the real power comes from. This happened a lot in Jesus' ministry. People who would be demon-possessed would come along and proclaim, you know, listen to him, he's the son of the most high, and Saint, or Jesus would immediately tell him, shut up, shut up. And they'd have to be silent because he had authority over them. So what's going on here? Well, part of what is going on here is Jesus and Paul does not want testimony coming from the spiritual world. He wants testimony coming from me and you. Real men and real women who've met the God of the universe and whose lives have been changed by him. People who've been moved from pain and suffering and shame and to life. We're going to see that throughout here. So look at verse 18. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated. I always hear Donald Duck here going, So he turned to the demon within her and in his best Donald Duck voice said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly the demon left her. Her masters, though, verse 19 Hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. A few interesting things here. So Paul gets exasperated. We don't know exactly know what it means. He's frustrated. Why? Well, at least we could deduce from the text. He's frustrated because he's trying to proclaim the message of Jesus. This girl has a following. Obviously, she's making a lot of money for her masters. So she's got a following in town. And maybe people are listening to her saying, hey, well, that's a dangerous thing. Because we know, the Bible tells us, that Satan is the father of lies. He wants to deceive you. Well, you know this. The best way to lie is not to tell an out-and-out lie. My kids try this. It's so easy. Like, I'm watching them, and one brother pushes the other to the ground, and then he starts crying like, what did you do? Nothing. I watched you. No, you didn't. You didn't see anything. How did you learn that? The best lie is, Daddy, um, I was walking and he tripped. I um, didn't see his foot there and we bumped into each other and my arms went forward to catch him, Father. (laughs) And Satan is excellent at this. Just take something good, really good, and twist it. Don't twist it 90 degrees, you know, 90% away. Just, Just twist it a little bit. Healthy human sexuality, just twist it a little bit. Just take alcohol and, and, and just twist it a little bit. Just take your, uh, your integrity, your ethics. You could be mostly good. Just, it didn't hurt anybody. And so Paul knows if she continues on this way and she gets credi- credibility and validity to what she's saying, at some point, at some point, she could twist it and now people are going to believe her. Not only that, but he's just frustrated. She's getting loud and obnoxious. He's like, stop, I got this. I don't need you. So he cast the demon out. But in verse 19, we learn something powerful. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. Did they love her? Did they care about her? I think it's so fascinating. These men are taking advantage of a woman who's clearly tortured. We don't know, the text never says, but every commentary of a pastor I've ever heard teach on this We believe that she became a part of the Philippian church. Let me ask you a question. Do you think she was ever afraid of the men in that church? 
I'm going to guess yes. 17 years of being a pastor and seeing hurt after hurt after hurt after hurt at the hands of men and the lives of women, seeing those women come to know their God as a loving, protecting Savior doesn't mean that they don't carry earthbound fear. And part of the process of sanctification for this girl, and maybe for some of you, is in seeing that not all men are jerks, even though we're all sinners. And men, this is why it's so important for you to be men filled with integrity and to truly look out for each other's interests and not just your own. Paul cared about this woman as much as he cared about the gospel message being proclaimed. He is serving her in this way. So, verse 19. So they grab Paul and Silas, they drag them before the authorities at the marketplace. Verse 20, the whole city is in an uproar, they say, because of these Jews. They are, verse 21, teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice, which is partially true and partially not. So part of being a Roman is that you had to worship the many pantheon of gods, but not only that, you also had to worship Caesar as God, and clearly that's something that Paul would have taught against. But if you read the way Paul teaches in the different Gentile cities, Roman cities he goes into, he rarely starts there. He almost always starts with some bridge to build to them, some bridge of faith to walk them across. So what we see here is Paul, he's constantly seeking and seizing an opportunity. He never misses a moment to do the work of God. He doesn't ever see life as just happening. He sees life as happening on God's time and in God's way. And when you change that, see church, I want you to get this. When you change your perspective, then you see every conversation you're in is, or, is an opportunity you could say ordained, but I don't want you to think of this in some fate way, like God's dictating every moment. No, no, no. It's that God is literally using you in every moment. So every teacher, every police officer, every homeless person, every poor person, every waiter or waitress or doctor or nurse or sales deal you're in is an opportunity to let the love of God be known. And I just don't want you to miss them. So those of you who have been coming for any length of time, you know I love sports. I love sports. I just, I'm a geek, okay, when it comes to sports. Like I was a little kid, I collected cards and I'd memorize the stats and none of my friends knew as much as I did and I thought that'd make me awesome. I don't know. But I just love, it's funny because there's no math in Bible college and I joke about it all the time, but I love the stats of sports. I literally have just pulled out all my sports cards and been going through them. I love to sell it. I love to collect it. I love to trade it. I love to buy it. Like it, it's been a problem for me in seasons of my life and budgets. Well, just recently I was talking to a friend, and my friend had said, hey, I'd like to maybe buy some of your old cards for my son. And uh, so he's like, hey, you know, you got any old, like, you know, Larry Bird's, Spud Webb's, Michael Jordan's, and some of those I want to keep to pass on to my kids. And so I'm like, "Eh, I don't know. But I was on Facebook Marketplace, and I saw a guy selling a bunch of Michael Jordan's. And I know a guy who's a dealer, so if you're following me, a sports card dealer, okay. (laughs) I may know some of those too, but just kidding. So, uh... I reached out to this guy. I said, okay, I hear this guy selling a bunch of Jordans. I got my friend over here who wants to give some to his son, you know. Is this a, a, a good price? And he said, no, he's, he's absolutely not. He's not even offering you retail price. You could go buy those retail for less than what he's offering. Um, and so I, I reached out to the guy, and I made an offer, a really, really low offer from what he was asking. And uh, he wrote back at double my offer, which was the exact number this guy said was retail value. But I, I didn't have that kind of money to spend for my friend. Like, no offense, I don't, you know, go buy them for your son yourself. So I just told the guy, hey, no thanks, I appreciate it. Well, about, about a week later, give or take, a few days later, um, this gentleman reaches out to me again and says, hey, 
would you be willing to buy it for this price? He negotiated something in the middle. I just thought the conversation was over. And I reached back out and said, look, I, I literally don't have the money. The price I offered you is the best I could do. And he said, I'll take it if you could do it tonight. I knew something was up. Now, this gentleman might be sitting here today, and if you are, welcome. I won't use your name or enough detail for people to figure out. So I said, here's my number. Can you talk? He calls me. I said, hey, are you okay? I don't know this guy. I don't know him for anybody. He lives in our community within 10 or 15 miles. You okay? Now, look, ladies, help me out here. When you ask a guy if he's okay, does he ever tell you (laughs) what's going on in his life? No. That's why you're all struggling in your marriage right now. The one of them, anyway. And this guy just, blah. You know, I, I say this all the time. I don't, guys, I don't think there's anything special about me. I think when I stop and say, are you okay? I, I think people believe me. Have you ever just stopped to say, are you okay? Seeking and seizing opportunities. So he tells me a story, and I say, look, <clears throat> I want to help uh, after I put my kids to bed tonight, I'll text you. We'll meet up. So I put the kids down. It's late. My wife, I tell my wife, look, I don't know if they're going to wake up or get out of bed or be crazy for you. I'm sorry. She's like, just go be there. So we showed up. I met him locally. And um, my wife and I were able to pay his rent. Uh, not his rent. His, it, he was penalized on his rent. He was it's going up every day. And we were able to give him a gift card for food. And look, I'm not saying this to pat me on the back. It was uh, just a small something. And he said, dude, you could totally have all these, all these Jordans. I was like, I don't want your Jordans, man. He said, but no, 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 I got to give them to you. I got to give them to you. I said, no, I, I literally can't take them because I'm not doing this to get your Jordans. I'm not doing this to make you feel like you owe me. And then every sports card or collectible you come across, you got to give to me until you make up the money that I gave you. This is just to help a person who's going through hard season. See, when you start to see every conversation in life, this is the only reason I'm telling this story. When you start to see every conversation in life as an opportunity to be God to somebody else, you're not God. You're just representing him to them. Then literally every conversation, even when you think you have a sweet deal, I felt like God said in my heart, Matt, you can't take advantage of this guy. And I can't because I love him and he's going through a hard season. I want to help him. I want to serve him. That's how I want you to see the world. So take a look, because we're not even to Philippians yet. Look at what happens here uh, next. Verse 22. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Uh, This kind of beating or caning was common. It's actually still common in certain parts of the world today. They literally would take off the outer garments. Don't think of a baseball bat, not that thick, but do think of something uh, long, slender, probably a little bit of flexibility, hard, probably not going to break when they're beating them. The goal was to crush bones. The goal was to create intense, painful bruising. Why? Because they freed a woman of a demon spirit? Verse 23, they were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Our history does a disservice here. See, we think of stocks, we think of like Cedar Point, right? You get that little thing you stick your head and your hands in, like you're taking a picture of the stocks. That's not how it would have been. The fact that they're in the inner dungeon, what you need to know is this is deep, deep, deep into the prison, possibly a cave in the side of a hill. There is no sunlight. It's damp. It's dark. It's probably got some sort of infestation of insects or mice or grossness, whatever it is. They don't care. They're not worried about whether or not you're healthy inside there. They're worried about keeping you inside there. 
Now, there's a couple things to note here. The stocks are not like we would think of, uncomfortable, whatever, about holding you. There are big chains maybe that held you to the ground. No, no, no. The stocks were created by the Romans to be a torture mechanism. So this was further part of the punishment. This isn't just something that held them in the prison. The jailer himself, because Philippi was an outpost for military, almost guaranteed was a former military man. He was no longer able to perform in whatever, the, the, the wars. So he's now moved to be a jailer, which he makes a fantastic jailer. He's strong. He's tough as nails. He's seen some things. He knows how to fight, and he knows how to obey orders. Now, jailers in that day, this is important for what happens next in the story. Jail, jailers in that day, um, if a person inside the prison, a prisoner, were to escape, the jailer would most likely go through whatever punishment they were going to receive in their place. So if the person were going to be crucified and they got out, he received a bribe or they broke free or he got overtaken by his friends, he would be crucified. So that kept the jailer quite motivated to make absolutely certain that the prisoner stayed in because whatever's going to happen to them is going to happen to you and possibly even so far as your family. And now Paul's in the inner, inner, inner dungeon of the prison. He and Silas in an uncomfortable situation. And if you are in that space, you are probably like me. You're fussing, you're whining, you're crying, you're complaining, you're moaning. God, where are you? Why do you keep doing this stuff to me? Verse 26. No, verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening. For where I want to show you in Philippians throughout the rest of the series, this is one of the most important things you're going to see. So if you stick with us, you listen online, you need to hear this verse. Paul literally sees every circumstance of his life, the good and the bad, as an opportunity for the glory of God. I don't know about you guys, God took me to this text in uh, 2014. I don't have time to tell that story, but God arranged me going to lunch, and I just desperately needed to hear from him. And I didn't have a Bible or anything on me. So I literally grabbed a preaching magazine out of my car that just happened to be all about Philippians. And I opened it up to this article that talked about the attitude of Paul to the church at Philippi. And I was so convicted to my core that my attitude stunk. And my last pastor used to call this stinking thinking. Because I had my head so wrapped around me. I don't want the, I don't know why, I, don't, I want the attitude of Christ. That no matter what's going on around me, I can't control what others do to me. I can't control how others respond to me. But I can see every opportunity, every situation as a chance to seek and to seize God's glory. That's exactly what Paul and Silas do. And this little last part here, the other prisoners were listening. Luke didn't put that in there just so you knew there were other prisoners. He put that in there to say they're tuning in because they're sitting in their cell complaining, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, let me out. Right, like every prisoner you ever met. They're sitting there trying to connive and figure out how to break out. Maybe they're spinning venom out at the jailer when he comes in, but not these two. What's it like to be Paul and Silas and be beaten and not complain? What's it like to be Paul and Silas and as they're putting you in these shackles, you are literally allowing them to do so? 
And then when you're finally in this uncomfortable, torturous position that's intended to create pain and discomfort, you just start praising God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I don't know what they sang. But as they sang, (laughs) verse 26, suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. A couple things. Number one, some of you sitting here today, I sense, probably doubt this whole thing ever happened. This book of Acts was written during the lifetime of Paul. If this didn't happen, do you know how easy it would be to prove it wrong? Why don't we have some Jewish document by some of the Jewish leaders who would love for Christianity to have gone away? Or some of the Roman leaders who would have loved, who literally killed countless numbers of Christians trying to make it go away. Why don't we have these documents written that say, this earthquake never happened. This jailer never converted. That woman named Lydia was made up. Why don't we have any of those? Because Luke is only recording what literally happened. He's just telling the story as he saw it. And look, if you were writing a story like this, wouldn't there be a part of you that goes, this is crazy, I'm not going to write this part. (laughs) Because if I write it, nobody's going to believe me. But it happened. So you're stuck. You're like, i got to write it. And so the jailer comes in, and why is he going to kill himself? Because he knows what's going to happen to all those prisoners. It's not going to happen to him. He assumes that everybody got free. Wherever he is, he's at home, he's whatever. Remember, this is after midnight. He's probably at home, sleeping in bed, and the word comes in, the prison doors are open. He runs out, changes clothes, grabs a sword, whatever. He gets there, all the doors are open. That's it. I'm just going to go ahead and take care of this for Rome. And while the sword is out, probably up against his flesh, Paul yells out in him, verse 28, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. Now, usually in, in ancient Roman writings, when somebody yelled loudly, it was considered a proclamation of the gods. I think Luke is probably telling you this story like this, not that it didn't happen this way, but he's telling you this because he's letting you know Paul is proclaiming on behalf of God to the Roman jailer. Stop! We are all here. Why in the world did the other prisoners stay? I mean, I get Paul and Silas. Somehow Paul's life had already won him the opportunity to lead. His character, his attitude, his integrity, the way he approached this whole situation, when the doors flew open and everybody is in awe of what's going on, Paul, whatever he did, probably got up and said, stay there, I'll deal with you in a minute. We don't know exactly how it went down. All we know is Paul seeks and seizes every opportunity as if it's from God himself. Look at what happens next, verse 29. The jailer called for the lights He ran to the dungeon, (laughs) down in that inner sanctum, he hears this voice, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, apparently, we can deduce this jailer had been hearing the rumors about this guy named Paul. Perhaps he heard about the conversion of Lydia. Perhaps he heard what happened with the demon-possessed girl. And then, again, when he had these men put in prison, I'm sure his own guards who worked for him told him, these guys aren't like the others. Something's different about these guys. They literally just received what was happening. They, They didn't fight back. They didn't yell at us. They didn't curse us. We didn't have to roughhouse them much. Verse 20, uh, where are we? Verse 31. Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. 
Now, what you need to take from this verse, it comes clear in the next verse. That doesn't mean that if a man believes, his whole house is saved. What it means is if the man will believe, men, if the man will believe, he can lead his whole household into salvation. Here's how I know. Look at the very next verse, verse 32. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. So the man receives the Lord right then and there, but he says to Paul and Silas, come back with me to my home. I have no idea what they did the other prisoners. It doesn't tell us, come back with me to my home. And he takes Paul and Silas back to his house. And Paul and Silas, still beaten from wooden sticks, <laughs> recently in an uncomfortable situation, go back to the jailer's home and keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. And most of us are afraid to invite somebody to meet Jesus because we're afraid they won't like us. We're afraid they'll disagree with us. We're afraid we won't have the right answer. Paul says, whatever's best for you is what I'm willing to do. I think that's the best definition of love that we can find. Me doing what is best for you. Now, it's not best for you the way you define it, the best way you describe it, but it's the way God describes it. It's me loving you. It's me meeting your need. It's me speaking the truth into your life. It's me literally taking the brunt of the punishment on my own shoulders to bear it for you that I might show you love. So Paul goes to the house. He proclaims the good news to him. His whole household means his servants. Uh, if he had slaves in the home as well as his wife, his kids, we don't know how old they are. And then it says this, uh, verse 33, even at that hour of the night, remember the started at midnight, the singing, the earthquake, how, how long, how old, we don't even know, three, four in the morning, who knows? Could you imagine dad comes home after this one, like kids wake up, I gotta tell you a story. And the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in the household were immediately baptized. Two things to note here. First, the jailer washed their wounds, and then Paul and Silas washed his. I love that. See, his love and service for this jailer redeemed a life, and the man cared for him in return. And then Paul and Silas washed him. And don't miss this word. This word immediately is actually in the Greek text. See, what's happened in our world is we've so separated baptism and faith by sometimes decades. Sometimes some people never do it. And see, in the book of Acts, if you read it, <clears throat> some people literally receive Christ and are baptized at the exact same moment. Some people receive the Holy Spirit and then get baptized later. <clears throat> some people, like in this situation, uh, receive. There's some things that happen in between. He washes her wounds, he cares for him, and then get baptized. But the whole point in the book of Acts is uh, baptism is so married to the, to the moment when you say yes to Christ that there isn't decades or months or years in between it. That's all wrapped up in one conversation. So when we look back, this jailer says, I remember the night that I gave my life to Christ and was baptized. It all happened in one moment. It's because baptism is this beautiful gift that God gave you. Just like communion, they're what we call the two sacraments or ordinances of the church, See, throughout the, the Old Testament and the Jewish people, uh, they believed in physical representations. They, they, they pointed to something bigger. So the reason they sacrificed lambs in the Old Testament wasn't because a lamb had any magical power. It points us to Jesus. The reason we have a flood in the Old Testament, Peter tells us, because it points us to baptism. There are all these things that point to something else, something bigger, more spiritual going on. And baptism and communion are like that. We don't believe here at Kingsway that the bread and the juice literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. While there are some churches who believe that, we don't believe that. But they are a powerful representation of the mercy and the grace that you have received in him. And just like or a baptism is a powerful gift that God has given you to wash your pain. Guys, this is a Roman soldier, a jailer. 
Do you think he had a foul mouth? I'm just going to guess. You think he had a foul mouth? Do you think that maybe he was a little bit rough around the edges, maybe gruff or harsh with his wife or children at times? The dude's killed people for a living. You think he's got some blood on his hands? Do you think he has anything when he met Jesus? He looks back and says, oh, wow, I can't believe I did that. Do you think this man ever struggled when he became a believer, he and his whole house, with being merciful? Now imagine, and we'll talk more about this in our series of Philippians, imagine taking a wealthy merchant who's a business owner, a jailer who's seen some hard parts of life, and a former demon-possessed girl, and throw them all in the same church together. Think they ever had conflict? Do you think they ever saw the world differently from each other? Do you think that they were ever impatient with the lack of growth and maturity in one of the others? Do you think it looks like every church you've ever seen just with a different story inserted? The church was supposed to be a gathering of messy people living messy lives together. And the Philippian church is no different than this one. There's not a one of us that's perfect. There's not a one of us that's not being grown in our faith. I'm going to guess that occasionally Lydia struggled with selfishness and possibly greed because that's what money can do to you. I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess, I don't have any proof on these things, that the demon-possessed girl struggled with trust of, of men or others. And I'm going to guess that the Roman jailer, or sorry, Philippian jailer, could it sometimes be gruff or rude or harsh or unmerciful? But I'm going to guess that as the Holy Spirit led them and grew them and revealed to them who God is, they continued to align their heart and their will to his. How do I know? Because this is the only letter Paul writes where he doesn't rebuke the church. Not once. He only encourages them because apparently they're continuing to grow in their faith. Look at verse 34. The jailer, he brought them into his house he set a meal before them, and he as an entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. <laughs> now, that's our intro. Let's go ahead and look at Philippians. That's a joke. I do want you to go to Philippians chapter 1 with me, but I'm, I'm almost done. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 12. Man, I was at the retreat, and I kept like, I'm sorry, I'm almost done, I'm almost done. All these guys come and be like, who cares? You preach for two hours, Pastor. I'm like, man, we need more of this. That's what I'm talking about course there are other guys going are you done yet verse 12 verse 12 <clears throat> and I want you to know this is Paul writing my dear brothers and sisters everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news man I want that attitude when Paul is writing this book to the church in Philippi guess where he is he's in prison again Multiple times Paul's in prison. So now, imagine this. You're the Philippian jailer. You're Lydia. You're this demon-possessed girl. You're their families and their friends who've now come to accept Jesus. And you get this letter from Paul, and you're all excited because it gets delivered. You're like, oh, we got a letter from Paul. Let's read it. And you find out in the very first part, he's in prison again. And the jailer's like, dude, I know how that goes. I was part of that the first time around. I did that too. And then Paul says, but I want you to know, guys, don't worry about it. Everything that's happened to me, all of it that's happened to me has helped to spread the good news. And the jailer's going, I saw that. I literally saw that. I believe that's exactly what happened. Verse 13, for everyone here, he says, including the whole palace guard, know that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. If you didn't catch that. Paul just told the church of Philippi, I'm in prison, but don't stress about it because every single one of the soldiers I've witnessed to. And again, the Philippian jailer's going, man, I remember this one time when Paul, like 10 years ago, I saw him do this. He's just amazing at this. 
That's exactly what's happening. And then Paul says, and listen, even though I'm in prison and my life is hard and painful right now, my bold living has encouraged the faith of the other believers. So be encouraged. Don't worry about me. Don't stress about me. Just pray for me. I want that attitude. I want that attitude. Look at the next. I'm going to have to go quick. I'm going to read the whole paragraph here, and then I'll tell you real quick what's happening. Verse 15. It's true, some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not necessarily intending to make, sorry, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Amazing. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. What Paul just said is this. So Paul's preaching. He started churches. People are following him, but now he's in prison. So there's a vacuum in leadership. What happens when there's a vacuum in leadership? People try to fill the void, don't they? And Paul is saying, people are trying to fill the void, but they don't have my heart. Some of them don't. Some of them do. Some of the people filling the void of my vacuum of leadership, in fact, are selfish, and they're making my pain worse because now they're leading you astray by not leading with pure hearts. It's not that they're teaching a heresy. It's that they're not leading with pure hearts. They're not loving and serving and giving the way Paul does. I want his attitude because he says, but that's okay because whether they're doing with pure motives or impure motives, Jesus is being preached, and that's all that really matters anyway. Imagine if you looked at your life as Jesus is being preached, and that's all that matters anyway. Doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor, doesn't matter if I'm in prison or if I'm blessed or if it's hard or if there's a struggle, all that matters is Jesus is being preached anyway. That's it, because that's the good news. That's the redemption, the salvation that we could be made right with God again. Then he says this. So here, we're getting a deeper look into his heart in this next passage. You've heard it before. Look at this next chunk. For I fully expect and hope, verse 20, that I will never be ashamed but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I could do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. What's he saying here? I mean, we've heard this preached so many times before, right? If you've been in the church for a long time, what's Paul saying? Selfishly, I want to die and go see Jesus. Anybody here ever feel that way? Selfishly, I'm tired of this world. But if I'm here, then I know God has a plan and a purpose for me. And I want to fulfill that plan and purpose. So for your sake, I guess I'd rather stay. Verse 25. And six, knowing this, he says, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I could continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Paul sees his life as one that should be exampled. I'm so hopeful that though I'm suffering, I will honor Christ and as a consequence, you will trust him more. Now, church, this is where this very last paragraph is where I'm going to close. Yes, we are literally almost done, but I want to tell you a quick story to set it up. So at this retreat, the first message I delivered was on the wounds that our earthly dads have created on us. 
And the second message was how uh, generational sin patterns affect us and how God doesn't allow us to dismiss it as I learned it or I was given this by my dad, but he expects us to grow up and take ownership. Man, God just did a powerful work. There were so many men there who were just wounded deeply, wounded deeply. And as we dealt with that, that night, I got to sit down and have a number of really hard, painful conversations with men. And one of them, this guy started sharing his story. And I asked him if I could share this with you. And he said, yes. So his story is this. He grew up in a, in a difficult situation. It's not my place to tell the specific details. But he ended up as a young man in a private, very, very, very litigious Christian school where there were a lot of rules, but not a lot of relationship. And so he began to be angry and despise God as a byproduct of this. He walked away from God, and I'll just tell you, he got caught up in some of the uh, deepest depths of, of immorality that you could imagine. And as he told me his story, he wasn't telling me in any braggadocious way there was deep pain, even in his current marriage, which was his second one, as a byproduct of his sin. In fact, part of his story of redemption was about him finally coming forward and owning how he dishonored and hurt his wife in the past by his choices, even though they were both Christian at this point nearly seven or ten years later, and he was sharing how his wounds were still there because he never actually gone to his wife and said, I'm sorry I did this to you. But he finally got moved by God to do it one day, and it turns out, it turns out his wife said, I'm glad you said that because I was literally thinking of divorcing you because you've been, I've been watching you be a Christian, and not once have you said you're sorry to me. As he told me about his depths of pain, I finally had to interrupt this. How in the world did you ever meet Jesus in the depths of all this? The short version of the story. Again, he met Jesus as a young man, but he was totally walked away from him. He said, my current wife and I were going through a very, very hard financial time. We weren't sure we were going to make it. We knew we needed some money, and there was a couple in our neighborhood, and we knew they were Christians. We kind of tried to avoid them as much as possible because of that. But when all this came up, we knew that they had some resources to help us, and they were the only people who would. And so we reached out to them to ask if they would help. And he said, Matt, I'm just being totally honest. If they had been totally in my face, I probably would have never gone to church with them. If they'd have been judgmental or dismissive in any way, I would have never listened to them. They came alongside us, they loved us, and they gave us money, free money. There was no strings attached. They didn't ask us to pay them back. And they didn't, didn't say, well, I'll give this to you if you come to church with me. They simply loved us, and they kept loving us. And because of that, this coming Sunday, he was teaching on the book of Acts. God took a man who was completely broken and destitute. He let his sin play out all the way to the deepest emptiness. And then a Christian couple came along and just said, okay, you have a need? See, when you decide to love somebody, it often costs you something. Take a look at this last paragraph now. Paul writes this, verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again, whether I ever get to come back, or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved. What does that mean? Well, when they lash back out at you, when they're crude or rude or harsh or mean, don't do anything back to them except for love them, love them, love them. Why? Because in doing so, you're showing them the mercy of God. Four, verse 29, you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. I want his attitude. And last, verse 30, we are in the struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So here's where we close. 
In the bulletin, hopefully you were given at the door today. If not, right outside here at our journey counter, you can grab one of these. There's a card. Here's both sides of the card. On the front, it just talks about what the journey is. And on the back, it looks like this. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and you do. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, take out this little card, is over the next two weeks to perform some sort of random act of kindness. You're going to seek and seize opportunities to be a blessing to somebody else in this community. It might cost you money, and if you don't have it, it might cost you time. Here's what we're not asking. This cannot be so uh, 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 non-interactive that you could just say, buy a meal for somebody at a drive-thru, and they never get to see you. Because whatever, we just gave you some suggestions here. You can come up with your own. But you may mow somebody's lawn, but we want you this bottom part tears off here. We want you to take this bottom part and just give it to them. And it just simply says, you can read for yourself, the act of kindness is for you. We hope it brought a smile and encouragement to your day. And then on the other side, why this act of kindness? It says, you are loved by God. This is a small example of God's love and caring for you. We've got a website here, kccshare.org. You can look it up. It's just got some information about God and some information about the church. That's it. We just want you to go out and bless people. One heart, one mind. Now imagine 2,000 men and women and even your kids going all over this community doing kind things for people and just giving them a small card and saying, we just want you to know that God loves you. That's it. We just want you to know. Why in the world did you cut my grass? Because God loves you. Why are you buying $50 worth of food for us at lunch today? Because God loves you. You are going to seek and seize opportunities. And here's my last encouragement. Keep your eyes and ears open. Your greatest gift, believer, your greatest gift is simply say to somebody, how can I pray for you? And just be ready to hear people's stories. And then ask that God would heal and redeem and restore and rebuild and bless what the enemy has torn down. Now, we're going to close with prayer. But here's the thing I have to say. Some of you listening today, the word of God is penetrating your heart and you're ready to receive Christ. Some of you have received Christ, but you've never been baptized like the Philippian jailer. When we close this service today, I'm going to send you out. You can grab a card out there at the table. But if you're ready to receive Christ or if you need some prayer, I want you to go to my left, your right, underneath this screen over here, the only working one. It's easy to find now. And I want you to go over there, and I just want you to talk to some people we have over there and say, look, I need Jesus, and I don't know what the next step is. And we'll walk you through the next steps. Let me pray for you as you go out to be a one-man, one-woman blessing machine. Father God, I thank you for every man and woman in this room. I thank you for their patience as I know I had a long message today. But God, we thank you more so, above all, for your spirit. God, help us to seek and to seize every opportunity for your glory. Open our eyes and our ears, God, to what you're doing around us, that we might uh, literally see every conversation as a possibility of something you're doing. God, help us to see where you're working and join you in that amazing work. God, we just pray that you would go with us. Go before us. God, may we just hear so many stories over the next couple weeks of ways you're blessing and moving and challenging. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, real quick, I just thought of something I didn't tell you and I have to tell you. We're selling tickets to the event starting today on October 27th. It's buy one, share one. So the one you buy is for you. The one you share is not for your wife or your kids or somebody in your life group. It's for somebody, your neighbor, your friends. You can buy those tickets right out here under, by that pillar. You can start buying them today. I already know I'm going to invite that young man that God introduced me to for the sports stuff. I'm going to invite him. I'm going to buy him a ticket and hope that he comes that night. So consider, consider buying your ticket today. All right, God bless. Have a great week.